All right, Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at continuing this series about moments in the life of Jesus when he shared a meal. Now, you probably don't realize this today. You probably haven't marked this anniversary. But today is a four-year anniversary of a text that got sent to the wrong place. Now, sometimes we have probably all sent texts to the wrong places and nothing comes of it or it's a quick misunderstanding or, hey, not an issue. I remember several years ago when one of my sons um, received his cell phone for the first time and his number had been previously used and he would get just random texts from people looking for somebody that was not my son. And so we have to say, this is not us or whatever. That's not who you're looking for and, and remove that number. But... Four years ago, a text got mistakenly sent, and it led to an incredible story. And so the text that was sent was from a grandmother. I think we have it here. And she's just sending them out to all of her family. And it says, Thanksgiving dinner is at my house on November 24th at 3. Let me know if you're coming. Hope to see you all. Of course, that includes Amanda and Justin. I don't know who Amanda and Justin are, but the grandmother sent the text out, all right? Well, included in this list of people to whom she sent this out was somebody that was not part of her family. And the person that received it was like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? And she says, your grandma. Well, he, suspicious because he didn't recognize the number, says, can you send me a picture? She says, of who? And she says, you. And so she does. She sent him a picture and says, here I am at work. Well, the next text that came back was from him, and his text was simply a picture of him. You're not my grandmother. But then he followed that up with, can I still get a plate, though? And the grandmother responded, and I love this, of course you can. That's what grandmothers do, feed everyone. For the last four years, Jamal Hinton has joined the Dench family for Thanksgiving dinner every year. He went the first year, and they took a selfie, exploded on the Internet. He has been there the last four years. I read this week that there are plans, even though as 2020 has been, Wanda Dench, the lady here, lost her husband to COVID earlier in this year. The plans are still for everybody to get together, including Jamal. But what I love about this story is a misplaced text, an uninvited, accidentally invited guest, if you will, ends up becoming part of their family. They have pictures now of them at ball games, at family events, where he has become friends with this particular family. And Wanda and Jamal talk about how much they have learned from and grown from each other. And I couldn't help but think about the fact of how relationships are often formed or developed or deepened around the table. In Luke chapter 14, we have another one of these incidences where Jesus is invited to dinner and they're there to examine him. But in the process, he examines us. Again, meals are central to the life and ministry of Jesus in Luke's gospel. One scholar said that at every point in the book of Luke in particular, Jesus is either coming from a meal, going to a meal or at a meal. That's the kind of process I can get involved in. I mean, I could be a part of a following a Savior that's always eating on the way to eat or coming from eating. I don't know. Maybe you grew up in a family. Some families aren't like this. Some families are just as dinner comes or they're there and they get it together and they'll figure it out. But I grew up in a family a lot of times when as soon as the meal was over, the next question was, so what's the next meal and what are we having? 
The idea is moving from meal to meal. And in the book of Luke, it feels like Jesus is doing that. He's moving from meal to meal to meal. And here in chapter 14 in particular, we have Jesus at a meal again with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. Look at chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It says, One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. Now, there are lots of questions out there because we're moving towards the, the middle to end of the book of Luke. This is not at the beginning. The, the tensions between Jesus and the Pharisees are real. And people are wondering, what in the world is he doing at a Pharisee's house? Not so much why would Jesus go eat there, but why do they keep inviting him there? We saw a story last week where he's invited there and all that happens with that. And then this week, again, he's invited and asked to come in and be a part of the meal. There are two or three reasons why most people think that Jesus is invited here. One is just the hospitality laws of the Hebrew-Israelite people, of the Jewish people, meant that if there was someone visiting from out of town, particularly on a Sabbath, that you had to, you were obliged to invite people into your home. And if you were Pharisee, the religious leader, you had to be an example for the community. And so this traveling teacher was coming in. He was from out of town. He didn't have a place to eat. Then he was expected, or you were expected, to invite him into your house. Another reason may be that most of the time when Jesus went to synagogues, he taught. That's what kind of the ministry is, that he would get up on the Sabbath, the synagogue was there, he would have a conversation, he would teach, or he would be visiting teaching at the synagogue during the week, and on the Sabbath they would kind of elevate that. And so Jesus is a traveling teacher. It was even more incumbent upon those that were part of the synagogue, part of the Pharisees, part of the religious class, to invite him into their home. The third reason that most people think that it may be the true, and those first two may be true, but the third reason is that it's a trap. They've invited him into their home to corner him and trap him. And that's kind of what we see play out over the rest of this story, at least the first part. Verse 2, it says, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. Now, in previous translations or versions of that, it would talk about dropsy. But here's the reality. What it is was a condition where they would swell with fluid, almost like congenital heart failure or some sort of heart issue is probably what was at the core of it. Their body would swell with excess fluid, and they would drink and want to drink all the time and still not be able to quench their thirst. They would not be able to get all they needed, even though they were swollen with fluid. In their day, not only was it a real physical disease that was happening, they were also would use this particular phrase, this particular disease, as a metaphor for people that continually filled themselves but were not satisfied. By the way, it's an ironic kind of comparison to the Pharisees who were religious and knew all the laws and filled their lives with the laws but weren't living out the will of God in their lives. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So that is the crux of the issue. This is not the first Sabbath issue that we've had. There was a man with a withered hand. There were other issues that Jesus has encountered, particularly in the book of Luke, that comes about about Sabbath questions. If you remember, um, we've talked about this before, that based on thou shalt honor the Sabbath or keep the Sabbath holy, that you work six days and on the seventh day rest. There were rules and regulations 
regulations that were out there about how people were supposed to observe the Sabbath. There were certain things. A few weeks ago on our Wednesday night Bible study on the Ten Commandments, we talked about that. Here are some rules for following, engaging the Sabbath. For us, what it means today. But for them, they had 600 plus rules about what you could and you could not do. Now, technically, these people realized that Jesus was probably not going to be able to stop his compassion and that he would probably heal this man, which would be a violation of the law because the condition that this man had was not immediately life-threatening. That the rules kind of said if it's a life-threatening thing, then you can do it. But this wasn't immediately life-threatening. So they were hoping to get Jesus there and either he would not be compassionate to this man or he would break the law. And either way, they thought we've got him, that we can show he's not compassionate or we can show that he has broken the law. And Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's asking them a direct question. He turns it back on them. He doesn't act immediately. It says they kept silent. They didn't say anything. They didn't want to answer because to answer would give themselves away. So he took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And then Jesus turns to them and says, and this is in the law, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? They could find no answer to these things. So the foundation of this is Jesus, first of all, is in this religious situation. He's at this house, probably of a wealthy individual within town, wealthy people around surrounding him. And they were seated there. They're there to examine him, to watch him. As it says, they were watching him closely. And they are bringing this man in, probably as a trap. Hey, bringing the guy with dropsy in, with the fluid in. We're going to trap Jesus. And Jesus begins to say, why is it not right to show compassion at all times? He compares it to an ox Or a son falling into a well, which may not be immediately in danger, but you're going to help them out of the compassion of your heart. And he says that this man, even though there were some ramifications in their society that suggested that this man would have what he had because of sin in his life, saying you should treat him with compassion as well. So the trap fails. At the same time, Jesus has been watching the dynamics of the room. Most of these would have been in a U-shaped kind of table. We talked last week about how they would lean on their left elbow and eat with their right, with their feet kind of out. And the corner table of the table would be the most prominent person. That would be the highest place of honor. And the closer you were to the highest place of honor, the more admirable it was for you. And so Jesus has seen them probably jockeying for position, trying to get in there, trying to get the best seats, trying to get the places that are prestigious. And he tells them this parable specifically to this group. Verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. He's going to give them etiquette of what it means to be someone who is a guest at a house or at a party And then he's going to get an etiquette about being the one that is the host of the party. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honor because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you'll proceed to take the lowest place. He says, imagine the embarrassment 
if you go and sit at the best place. You get there early. Most of the time, the most prestigious guests arrive later. Imagine you get there early and you say, man, this is my place. I belong in this place. I have a seat at this table in this prestigious place. And then someone more important than you shows up. And they say, sorry, you got to go down back there. Verse 10 says, but when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when one who invited you comes, he will say, no, 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 come up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what's happening in this particular place is that Jesus is saying to them, listen, when you go somewhere and it's the principle of life, it's not just about a eating situation, although for them, eating situations would have been huge. They would have had one huge meal a day, and it would have been a two to three hour affair sometimes, having conversation, talking, visiting, celebrating together. And then the midst of that, their day would revolve around where are they going to go, who are they going to eat with, where are they going to sit. In fact, this is where most of the business was done. This is where uh, deals were made. This is where religious practices were established. This is where leadership was chosen, where at meals like this. And Jesus says, when you go to those meals, first of all, go with an attitude of humility, always willing to take a second place seat. It's countercultural, not only in their time, but in ours, to think, how can I lower myself? How can I find a place of dishonor instead of honor? One of the things about the country in which we live, one of the things about America is we talk a lot about our rights, and we do have rights. As human beings, as individuals, as Americans, and we talk about rights being violated. And what Jesus is saying is that when you go, don't cling to your rights of service, of place, of stature, but instead lower yourself. Now, one of the things that makes this so powerful is this, is that the one speaking to them about finding a place lower at the table is literally God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, who has lowered himself not only to being a human being, but from what we know in the birth narratives, a poor human being, who is rejected and despised by the people he created. Philippians 2, one of the earliest hymns about Christ possibly, says that our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who, although he was in the form of godliness, although he was equal with God, although he was God, did not consider that something to be held onto or grasped or to make sure that he would not let go. But he humbled himself and became a servant and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he was fulfilling the mission of God. In his life. One of the things that I think we miss so much of the time is that following God's will often means going lower, not higher, in our earthly prestige and position. Our world's about climbing corporate ladders. Our world's about attaining certain levels of business, of getting certain number of sales, about going from one place to another and building on and developing and getting higher. And yet, oftentimes, according to the Word of God, 
following God's commands will take us lower, not higher. That's what it says right here, isn't it? For everyone who exalts himself, everyone that pulls himself up by his own bootstraps, everyone that tries to get up the corporate ladder on his own, everyone who's attempting to get to that next step on your own, you will be humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's there in Philippians chapter 2. It says that he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Sat down at the right hand of the Father so that because he had humbled himself, every knee will bow and every tongue will express that Jesus Christ is Lord. In this opening parable, he says, don't go into a place figuring out how can I attain certain levels of prestige. Ask the question, how can I serve in the midst of this? And then he gives them another parable. This time about what happens when we're the host. He also said to the one who invited him. Now, this is going to be a little awkward, just to be honest. He's sitting at a table, more than likely, with the leader of the synagogue, with religious leaders, with rulers of the law, people that knew the law, probably local officials, maybe wealthy businessmen. But he's sitting at the who's who of this little area. And he says, when you give a lunch or dinner, he's speaking directly to the one who called this, don't invite your friends. Your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. That's the way it worked. Hey, I'm going to have everybody over to my house and I'm going to invite the wealthiest people I can and provide a great meal for them so that when they have a dinner party, they will invite me. And then when we're talking business, we can talk about, hey, remember the other day we were eating together? Remember that the other day? There was access in the room. For those that were making decisions. And to make decisions in the community, to make decisions in the religious um, environment, to make decisions in the business environment, you had to be in the room. You had to be at the lunch. You had to be at the table. And Jesus says, when it's your turn to throw a party, don't ask any of those. On the contrary, verse 13 says, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Or you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He says, instead of thinking, how can I attain earthly gain by inviting certain people to my life, to my table, ask the question, who can I invite that could never do anything for me at all? This would have been economic calamity. You'd be cutting off your Engagements, because if you don't invite people to yours, they're not going to invite you to theirs. He says, but to truly serve the Lord, you do things for people without contemplating what they can do for you or even how it makes you look. Invite those who can't reciprocate your generosity. Invite those that would never get invited. Make room at the table. Which leads me to a couple of questions I want to ask, and then we're going to be done today. The first question I want to ask is simply this. Metaphorically speaking, if your life was a party, who's on the guest list to your party? Who's invited? Who's there? Who have you surrounded yourself with? Following Jesus means that you look at your life, your gifts, your resources that have been given to you to use 
as a blessing to others to extend the kingdom of God and to glorify his name. How's your life coming with that? That the Lord gives you certain gifts and talents and jobs and environments and social circles and friendships and are made aware of situations in the world so that you can bless others, that you can extend the kingdom of God and you can glorify His name. Your life, your career, your skills... How do you primarily see what God has given you and how you use them? Your work, your career, your involvement, your community endeavors, your church work. Is that primarily something you do to enrich yourself? Or is that something you do to serve, to lift up others? And I'm not just talking about lifting up your family, although that can be part of it, or your friends, or your church family either, although that's obviously part of it. But Jesus is talking here about reaching outside of those circles into a world that is in desperate need to people that can never help you in return. Do you see your gifts, your talents, your work, your career as part of your mission? Both as that thing which God has given you, particularly your career or your work, are the things that God gives you to be able to bless others and to help others. Listen, I am thankful. We have become, uh, over this past parts of this pandemic, we have become ever thankful for the people that do work to help to bring things to us, to help to enrich our lives. Truck drivers who drive produce across the country. Farmers who are in the midst of farming that. People that are building and making and manufacturing. Our essential workers on the front lines. Our teachers. Our nurses. Our doctors. The government officials that are making decisions. We are thankful for them and for all of us. Whatever work it is that we have been given. Whatever task it is that we have been assigned. We should do it for the glory of God. Realizing that it is a blessing to others who are not able to do that particular work. And we use it as a mission field to be able in our work environment, our home environments, and our community environments to be able to tell people about Christ. In fact, we need to ask the question, Jesus was kind of turning the conversation this way, is how can you use what you have from God to bless others? How can we be a part of using what God has given us to accomplish the Great Commission? To take the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in need, both physically Materially, but also spiritually. Jesus, in the midst of this discussion, is on one level reminding them of the responsibility to the poor and the outcast. And the men like they had brought to trap him. The man that was uh, f- had fluid that had swollen his body. But he's also, in a subtle way, reminding them that when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are all beggars and those in need, and poor. Without Christ, without the Lord reaching down to us, we have no hope. And so he says, when you have been given that hope, when you have received that hope, it is our responsibility, it is our privilege to share that hope with others. And I realize we are moving into a season where that seems to be more frequent than ever. 
I mean, during the season of Christmas, we talk a lot about giving to others. And listen, our church family always responds in a great way. We, um, Susan put out a thing about Facebook, about our, in the women's page, about us needing some help for one of the local schools that is happening in a different way this year that we always help with the next door and other places. And people have responded and our church family responds. But we're talking about a lifestyle of giving and reaching and helping. How do you arrange your schedule and your finances and your opportunities for the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom? How do you leverage what you have for His glory? We believe that God has made all of us in a particular way. We talk a lot here at the church about our shape, our spiritual gifts, our heart our abilities, our personalities, and our experiences. And that God uses those things to shape us into the individuals that we are. And the question then becomes, how can I use my shape, my spiritual gifts that God has blessed me with, my heart, the things that my heart cares about, the abilities that God has given me that I know I have. I'm just good at certain things. The personality God has given me and the experiences He's brought in my life. How can I use those and leverage those to help those that are most in need? Jesus says, when you throw in the party of your life, don't just get all your friends around the echo chamber of what you're doing, but reach beyond that for his glory. And the second question that I have, and this is where we'll end today. Are you intentionally including outsiders at your table? I'm not sure how many months. It's been over a year. It's been a while now since our staff read a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield, but it is a convicting and challenging book. In the book, she talks about practicing radically ordinary hospitality and says that our world has become misinformed about what hospitality is. Now, when we think of hospitality, we almost think of the hospitality industry now. People that do it professionally. And that has to be planned and decorated and perfected in every way. But at its base core, hospitality is literally just opening your life up to those that are around you. In the book, she tells stories of people that have been in and through her house. and She has a remarkable testimony on her own about a time how God brought her out of sin and brought her out of shame and brought her out of a life that was arguing against Christianity into salvation and into being someone who was speaking for and moving in the direction that God has called her to, speaking the gospel to her neighbors. And she talks about her plan of hospitality, which is almost every day of the week. Somebody is in their home. Somebody is there sharing life with them. Neighbors, non-Christian neighbors, Christian neighbors, Bible studies, people, Bible studies with people that they know, Bible studies with people that are invited that come. She talks about a relationship she has across the street with a neighbor who was obviously walking in a path away from the Lord and how she loved on that neighbor and her family did. And she says that if we as believers are going to earn our reputation back, As the people of God and what it should be, we're going to have to learn to practice radically ordinary hospitality on a regular basis. 
Let me just say, I know talking about that in the midst of COVID-19 when governments are telling us not to get together for Thanksgiving is a weird thing. And yet I can't think of a way right now to arrange our lives in such a way that when we're out of this, people are going to be longing for fellowship, real connection more than they ever have. And how can we leverage who we are and what we have to make sure that we are doing what God has called us to do in inviting people in. In the book, she addresses some of the concerns that people have about that. Some people have a misunderstanding about what hospitality is. We talked about it a little bit. It's not the hospitality industry, but it's also not just inviting your friends over. That in biblical sense, hospitality was welcoming strangers, people that were traveling through, people were passing through, and offering them rest and respite and food and fellowship in the midst of that. There is a place, obviously, for your friends and neighbors. The biblical word for that is more fellowship than it is hospitality. A second reason, she says, people are reluctant for this kind of living is because of the fear in their own lives. of What will it mean if my family's exposed or what happens if something goes wrong? And she said, here's the reality. It probably will at some point. And yet we trust in the Lord's sovereignty at all times. And we know that we must do what God calls us to do, whatever the outcome may be. One of the things she kind of attacks in there is the myth that you have to have a perfected state before you can invite people in. I read this statistic. It's been a couple of years ago now. I can't remember exactly where I read it. And I've looked for it again. I haven't been able to find it. But it was some statistic that said that Americans spend more time cleaning their own houses today and the time is spent getting it picked up and vacuumed and cleaned, spend more time today than we ever have. And we're having people into our homes less than we ever have. And so we've built up this fortress for ourselves where we are protected in who we are And yet we are missing on the opportunities to invite people into our lives. The last reason she says that we don't do this enough is because we just don't have any margin in our lives. We have scheduled ourselves completely. But I wonder, what would your life look like to invite outsiders to the table of your family, of your life, for the purpose of loving on them? And helping them to see the love that God has for them. Jesus is walking into a trap here. And as he walks into the trap, he heals the guy right away. And then he uses that occasion to say, by the way, walk humbly in this life. Don't look for gain. Don't look for prestige. Those that exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then secondly, look to help those who can never help you. And that would never be able to pay you back for the sake of the name of God, for his glory and his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be people that would always be willing, always be willing to welcome anyone to our table, into our lives, Lord. We know that just eating a meal isn't the end of it, it's bringing people into our lives for the purpose of building relationships, for the purpose of sharing the gospel. 
And Lord, we know that you have not called us individually to reach every single person on the earth. But Lord, there are people that you have put into our sphere of influence, Lord, that we need to invite to the table, that we need to invite to be around us. And Lord, we pray that we would be faithful to that, that we would live humbly for your name, and that we would live, Lord, with our table open to whomever you send our way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.